Go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 13. Can you believe it? I shouldn't ask that because some of you are like, yeah, I can believe it. We've been in Hebrews for 25 weeks. My math serves me right. That's over half a year. I think that's right. And actually, it's been a little longer than that because we did take a few weeks off. What? Yes, but we did take a few weeks off, so it's been over half a year. Draw your attention to verse 25. Grace be with you all. Let me pray. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Chuck. We are finishing the text of Hebrews today, but we're not finishing the sermon series. And the reason is, at the beginning and end of every sermon series, I like to do an overview or, at the end, a review. Because, as we'll talk about later, Hebrews was really meant to be heard all in one setting. It is, in many ways, a sermon. A sermon that was written down, meant to be publicly proclaimed to the church. And so sometimes as we dig into these individual passages, which I think is important, you need to study God's word that way. But at the same time, as Pastor Al talked about even in Sunday school with Romans, you do have to back out a little bit. So in two weeks, not next week, but in two weeks, we're going to back out again and look at an overview of Hebrews. Next Sunday, I will not be here. Pastor Al will be preaching on the latter part of Romans 8, correct? Um, which will also be somewhat covered in adult Sunday school. Speaking of which, if you're not coming to adult Sunday school, it's been a wonderful study on the book of Romans. Uh, We did chapter 7 today. We'll be in chapter 8 next week. You'll get a a bit of that in the sermon as well. But I highly encourage you to attend adult Sunday school here in the sanctuary at 10 o'clock. So all you have to do is come a little bit earlier and uh, you'll get just a wonderful time. I am taking off this week, so I won't be in the office. If you need to get a hold of me, um, don't. You won't be able to. <laughs> Sorry. Um, actually, I will be around. It's, it's not even a staycation. It's kind of a workingcation. That's awkward. But uh, the reason is I've been working on my basement, and I'm trying to renovate my basement and make it livable space, and I'm taking this week off to work on it. So lucky me, uh, I get to slave away in my basement. But... I tell you that because it's on my mind a lot lately, and uh, the, at every stage in a renovation project like this, you find that there's new tools that you need, new equipment, you know, you don't have the nails you need, you, yeah, some of you are like, amen, that's the best part of it, it's true, Getting, you know, having to suffer through buying new tools is rough, uh, but, but there are times when, when you go to put something in the wall, you, you go to hammer a board in, and you think, where's that? that piece of equipment I need. And sometimes it's, I don't have one, I don't own it, I need to go to the store and I need to get it because I don't have the equipment that I need. I'm not equipped. Most of the time for me, it's, I had it 10 minutes ago. I know I had it. Or I know I own one and it's somewhere in the mess that is my workbench in the garage. But I know I have one and I'm not going to the store to get one because it's there somewhere. But Or somebody, yeah, or somebody borrowed it and didn't get it back. Or sometimes I pick up a tool and I think, that's not mine. I don't, I don't know whose that is, but I, it's mine now, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's a hammer. I mean, come on, it's like six bucks or whatever. <laughs> Cheap hammers. But my point is, at each point along the way, there are 
there, there's bits of equipment that you need. And Home Depot right now is making a killing off of me. Uh, I feel like I'm keeping them in business. Uh, they're getting basically all of my kids' college money. So hopefully they're okay with that and they can live with that guilt. But so much of my time is, is consumed with moving from one project to the next and thinking, do I have all of the equipment that I need? Now, I think in many ways we face similar things in our Christian life. You might be going through a situation in your life right now where you think, I'm not prepared for this. I'm not equipped for this. I don't have the knowledge that I need to face this situation at work or this situation in my private life. I don't have the skill set that I need to engage in this. I'm struggling to grow in my relationship in Christ. I need to be equipped. And we can get overwhelmed. The truth is that Scripture comes to us and calls us to obey. It says, do these things. Don't do these things. And we can read those and say, okay, yes, that's what I want, but I'm struggling to do it. And that's in many ways what Romans 7 was about. And and we say, I I, I want that, but there's all this tension and these habits and, and all these other things pulling at me. I'm not equipped to go the way that I want to go. And we can have all sorts of guilt. Sometimes... God's truth comes in and confronts which way we're going. And we say, I want to go this way. This is my way. I'm going this way. And then God says, "Uh uh-uh, you need to go that way. And we think, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to be equipped to go that way because I don't even want to do that. I think sometimes also we say, well, I just don't know enough. I, 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 sometimes you hear a sermon, a Bible study, a lesson, or you read God's word for yourself and you think, I'm not even sure what this is about. Or you learn something new and you think, why didn't I know that before? There's so much I don't know. Can I tell you, I've been in ministry now for 20 years. October will be my 20th anniversary. I started 1997. I was a a senior in college, started part-time as a youth pastor. Ever since October of 1997, I have pretty much, except for a few breaks here and there, taught, preached at least once a week, if not every week. I pour a lot of study into my teaching and preaching. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know enough. And we can hear things like that and think, well, well, then how can I ever possibly know enough? But here's the thing. When you study an infinite God and you learn something more about Him, it points to this huge area that we still have yet to learn. I actually think part of the marks of Christian maturity is understanding in greater measure how much we don't know how much of God there is to still explore and learning about and to learn about. So then, how do we come to an idea of what it means to be equipped? Well, that's a great start. You've just told me there's no way I could know everything. I'm pretty much not equipped for the situations in my life, and now you're going to encourage me to be equipped. And that's exactly what we're looking at in the Christian life today. What does it mean to be equipped? We're going to look at chapter 13 of Hebrews 20 through 25, the end of this book. We're going to look at who it is that equips us. We're going to look at how he, God, has equipped us and why, what's his purpose in it. And then we're also going to look at how do we know how to use what it is that God has equipped us with? What are the instructions that he has given us? So that's what we're doing this morning. If you would, let's just bow in a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on the study of his word.
Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our eyes. May we humbly come knowing that we don't know, and yet also knowing that you make yourself known. And so may we trust in you as we come to know you more. May you encourage us and challenge us as you see fit. And may we be open to whatever it is you have for us today in this passage. In your name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at being equipped. And let's do this. Let me just read 20 to 25. We'll set the whole thing before us. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written you, or written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Now, as I said earlier, context, and I've tried to do this with every sermon, context is so important. Because we're jumping in here at the end of this book, and what the author is doing is writing a benediction, a closing blessing on the hearers of the book. But he's not just jumping out of everything he's just talked about. Really what he's doing is using the benediction as a summary. And there are some very dense sentences in this summary where the author is bringing in some major important points that he has spoken about throughout the book. In fact, go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Because in many ways, there's a a bookend that's going on here where he's tying all the way back into Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 starts with the Lord speaking. God has spoken. Let me read verses 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The rest of Hebrews expounds upon this idea that God wants to be known, makes himself known, has gone to great lengths to make himself known throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. But then we come to Jesus. And in a greater way, God has made himself known. That Jesus Christ is the greatest possible message from God. But more than that, all of the sacrifices, all the traditions of the Old Testament, all of the prophecies point forward to Jesus Christ. He is greater than all of them because he is the fulfillment of them. And so he walks through how Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is a greater sacrifice. Jesus is a great high priest. And then we came toward the end of the book. It says, now this is how we are to live. And so all of these things are being wound up and concluded in a prayer here at the end of the book. And the prayer starts, or the benediction starts, with the subject. Who is it that's doing the action, right? That's kind of grammatically, what subject means. And so here we look at the equipper in verse 20. Who is the one who equips us? Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. There's the subject. 
This is the one doing the action. And he starts by saying, it's the God of peace. Let me ask you, what's your definition of peace? This has been on my heart and mind, especially toward the end of this week, as we've had just another tragic story in the news of violent unrest in our country. I believe it was Charlottesville, is that correct? And again, racial tensions that have come to the surface. People have been hurt, yelling and screaming on both sides. Now somebody has even been killed. Now let me ask you, would you say right now in our country we have peace? And, and, and I hope through situations like that, we see that and we say, well, no, because see, look at what's happening there. But let me ask you, before those protests and before the protests turned ugly, even in that city, was there peace? No. See, I think so often our idea of peace is an absence of conflict. If I don't see anything going wrong, if I don't feel any conflict, if if there's nobody rioting in the streets, well, that's peace. As long as there's not a war going on somewhere, that's peace. And I would say, no, it's not. In fact, I would say scripture says, no, it's not. That is not peace. Because when the tensions are right there under the surface, even if they are not seen, they are still there. And that's not peace. Biblical peace is not simply the absence of conflict. In fact, biblical peace is all things working according to God's plan. That's biblical peace. When all things work according to God's plan, that's peace. Now think about that. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Because Hebrews 12, when we looked at it, talked a little bit about what God does in order to shape us, form us, uses the word discipline, to train us, if you will, to disciple us. And I want you to think as I read this, does your definition of peace include what I'm about to read? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Skip down to verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Peace for those who have been trained by it. When we come and we look at the God of peace, we've got to make sure that we don't read into that a human definition of peace, which says, well, God's the God of peace, therefore he just wants all good, shiny, happy things to happen to me, and nothing bad will ever happen, and that's the God that I serve. And as long as everything's going swimmingly well in my life, then me and God are good. And the moment tragedy comes, we say, wait a minute, if he's a God of peace and he loves me and this is in my life, well, something's wrong. And, and we might say, well, God's wrong. The scripture's wrong. It said he's a God of peace, and that's not true. Or sometimes we say, well, I'm wrong. There must be something wrong with me. And scripture actually says, no, it is often through these conflicts that God is working out his will in our lives. And that, biblically, is peace. Things operating according to God's plan. May the God of peace See, God has a much bigger plan than just our moment-by-moment situations. 
Will there be a time that comes when God's plan is ultimately and finally realized and we will experience it forever and ever? Absolutely. And guess what? In that moment, never ever will there ever be a little bit of conflict ever again. It'll all be done away with. But the Bible says we can have that peace now, even in the conflicts now, because we are trusting in the God who is working out his plan, the God of peace that is at work. So so the subject here is the God of peace, but the author in this very dense statement is, is kind of like, have you ever been to a conference when they announce a speaker? And you could just say, here's you know Joe Schmo. And, and move on with life, but that's not what they do. They give a really long introduction, you know, all of his credentials. And that's kind of what the author here is doing with God. So he is the God of peace, but then he goes on to say, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. He says, you, you want to know the God of peace, and you want to understand this one that I'm calling out to for this blessing in your life. You need to understand that this is the God who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a promise from God to us. It is a binding contract between us and God. Now, in Scripture, there are some contracts where it is a a bilateral contract, meaning two people enter into it. And if either side screws up, contract is null and void. This is kind of like, I I tell you I'm going to buy your car. We sign a contract. I will pay you you $2 for your car, and you give me the car. That's the contract. Anybody wants to take me up on that, feel free. Um, but, But if I fail to pay you the $2, I didn't hold up my side of the contract, right? If I give you the $2 and you fail to give me the car, well, you didn't hold up your side of the contract. The contract is broken. But that's not what this is about. You see, an eternal contract, this means a promise, a a binding by God of himself to us that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. An eternal contract. Before you were ever born, before humanity ever existed, God made a promise. And it was a promise to carry out His will. And it was a promise to carry out His will, as this passage says, through Jesus Christ. Through His blood on the cross. Through His death on the cross. And through His resurrection. The interesting thing there is that that covenant is in effect as long as it is true that Jesus Christ has died and risen again. And the Bible says that that has been true in God's mind's eye and his plan from eternity past, and it is true now because he has died on the cross and risen from the grave. And nothing, nothing can ever take that away from us. This is the one that verse 21 says equips us. So if you're struggling and you're saying, well, I don't know if God can do this in my life. I I don't know if He can help me to be obedient in this area. I don't know if He can change this aspect of me. Stop. Stop looking at that situation and turn to the cross and say, did God raise Jesus from the dead? See, sometimes we fight with the answers to the wrong questions. And we need perspective. We need to know the power of the one that's equipping us. And if the answer, which it always is, to the question, did Christ raise, or did God raise Christ from the dead? If that answer is yes, then these answers are yes. God can and is 
and does equip us to do his will. And it's all through Christ. Another part is added on here about Christ in this sense, the shepherd of the sheep. There's a whole study we could do about shepherding in Scripture. There's a lot of literature out there. I I highly recommend um, books about the shepherding in Scripture because it's such a foreign concept to us. I'm not a shepherd. I'm guessing most of you aren't shepherds. I don't think we really have that concept of a shepherd today. And yet shepherds knew their sheep. They knew each and every one. They would tend to them. They would pick them up and look them over and, and tend to the cuts and scrapes. They knew them. They loved them. They worked for what was best for the sheep. They they took them to the pastures they needed to go to. They would lay down their life for the sheep. They would guard them from the wolves and the predators. Shepherds loved the sheep. And I think that's being brought in here, that great shepherd of the sheep. But there's another aspect specifically to Hebrews, I think, that's being brought in here. Because as we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews, so much of Hebrews is taking the story of the Exodus, right? So God saving his people out of Egypt and bringing them to the promised land. It's taking that story and using it as an example or an illustration of Christ and us now. We have been saved by Christ, which is better than the salvation they had in the desert and through the Red Sea. We are being led by Christ. He is our shepherd. And do you know who else has been called a shepherd of God's people? Moses. Moses was referred to as a shepherd of the people of God, leading them from the slavery in Egypt to the promised land. But now he says, we don't have Moses as a shepherd. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the one who knows you, tends to you, cares for you. He is the one who's leading you through each of these situations of your life. He is the one who knows the eternal destination to be with him forever, perfectly in his presence. And so here we have the subject of who is doing the action, the God of peace, the same God who brought Jesus back from the dead and has established his eternal covenant and who has given his son as our great savior and our great shepherd to lead us from death to life. Now, when somebody is introduced like that and then you're told that that person has done something for you, I would think we'd want to listen up. Right, So let's look at this God who equips us and what it is that he equips us with. What is the equipment? Verse 21. Equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch that? God equips us with everything to do His will. So in those moments that we say, I can't, I can't follow Christ, I can't change myself, I can't make myself holy, I can't obey, I can't be a good person, stop and say, but God can. And in Christ, He has. God can, and in Christ, He has. God equips us with everything we need to do, or everything we need to do His will. Some of us, I think, 
And some of you maybe were brought up in a situation, very religious situation, and, and, and you're brought up to do the will of God. You need to please God and shame on you when you didn't please God. You're not good enough. And, and some of you maybe didn't hear that from the outside, but that's what you started internalizing. I'm, I must not be good enough. These people are all awesome, and it must be me. Some of you are sitting here right now thinking that. Man, these people are amazing and so scriptural and holy, and they're singing and can't believe they let me in. And you're struggling with this. And you think, I, I can't do what they do. Let me in on a little secret. Let me let you in on a little secret. They can't do what you think they can do. None of us can. It is only the God who saves us who can also equip us to do His will. Now check this out. Because some people will say, okay, Well, if God gives us everything to do His will, then it doesn't matter what I do. Why does it matter how I live? I mean, evidently, if I'm not obeying, that's His fault because it's His job to equip me to do what I'm supposed to do. Here's where obedience and faith come in. See, we get these backward. We think that obedience leads to God's blessing. If I do the right things, then God will bless me. This makes God kind of like a, a genie that, that we, we have him here caught up in this little bottle and, and our obedience is rubbing the lamp and then poof, he shows up and well, look at the amazing things you did today. I will bless you. Who's in control in that situation? We are. And the Bible very, very clearly confronts us with the harsh but freeing reality. We control nothing. God is sovereign and He is in control. Now let's change that picture to help us understand biblical obedience. Biblical obedience says, I am trusting that God has done what He said He has done. He has saved me through Jesus Christ. Biblical obedience says, I am trusting that God is doing what He says He's doing. He is changing me from the inside out, giving me everything I need to do to follow His will. Therefore, because I trust what God is doing, I will live that way because I know He is enabling me to do it. Do you see the link between faith and obedience? If we don't live that way, then what we're saying is God's not strong enough to do this or He's lying when He said He did. Obedience springs from faith. It comes out of faith, but it has to start with faith. Verse 21, May this God equip you with everything good for doing His will, and may He work in us what is pleasing to Him. I hope if you are here today and you claim to be a Christian at all, in any way, shape, or form, I hope that there is a sense in which you want to please God. If you're here and you're in a marriage relationship, there should be some sense in which you want to please your spouse. You want to live in some way, shape, or form for what's good for them. We want to please God, and yet when we come to an infinite, all-holy, all-powerful God, we feel about this big, and we probably should feel smaller. We say, well, how am I supposed to please God? I can't please God. And so we run ourselves ragged, trying as hard as we can. And we wonder why we're so frustrated. Look at what this scripture says. God works in us what is pleasing to Him. If there is anything in your life that pleases God, it is because God is working it in you. 
and the things that, that we so want to please God in our life, we need to run to what He's doing because what pleases Him is what He does in and through us. And all of this desire to please God is met by Him, fulfilled by Him. So the pressure is taking, taken off of us of I'm not measuring up, I'm not good enough, and God says, I am. And I'm doing it in you. You need to trust what God is doing. He is equipping us for every good, everything good for doing His will and working in us what is pleasing to Him. And He's doing this through Jesus Christ. Not through more effort on our part. Not through spending more time reading our Bible, although that's good and we'll get there in a second. But that doesn't earn God's pleasure. Not through going to church as if God then owes us His blessing because we showed up at church or we put a certain amount in the offering plate. It is through Jesus Christ that these things come. If we want to please God, if we are struggling to obey and want to obey God, if we want to be equipped, run to Jesus. That's what Hebrews has been all about. Don't take the message of Hebrews and say, okay, I got it, this is really important theological stuff, now I'm going to go do it on my own. I hear some people say sometimes, you know, it's, it's God's work to save us. It's our work to sanctify us. That's not true. It's God's work to save us. And it's God's work to sanctify us. It's our work to trust Him every step along the way. And live in faith in what He's doing in and through us. God is very good at what He does. And so when Scripture says He's equipping you, He is changing you so that you are pleasing to Him. Trust that He's really good at that. And don't try to counteract or or take over what God is doing in your life. Watch for it. Step out in faith and trust what He is doing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12-13 through says it this way, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, some people read that verse and they say, See? See, God saved them. Now they have to work out their salvation. Now the responsibility is on them. But the next verse says this, For it is God who works in you, to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. That's faith and obedience. He says, live it out, work out your salvation, because God is working in you. Every act of faithfulness that we do is merely an expression of the grace that God has already given to us. It is living in trust in that. Living it out. God says, I'm making you loving. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It says, I'm making you loving. I'm putting that in your heart. Therefore, when you act in love, you are living in faith that God is making you loving, whether you feel like it or not. I will live in the faith in what God is doing. And he does this through Christ, and he does it at the end, it says, for the glory of Christ. You see, if I work really hard, and I am really amazing, and I do a great job, first of all, I'm fooling myself, but second of all, it's all about me. If I'm really that impressive, then you should be impressed with me. You should say, wow, Dave is amazing. That is so cool. But if I am a wicked, wretched sinner saved only by the grace of God and any good and pleasing thing in me can only come through Jesus Christ, then when you look at me, if you see anything good at all, do you know what you should say? 
Praise God, because man, that guy's a loser. God gets all the glory. And that's what we should want in our life. That's what we should want in our church. It's what we should want in our families. We don't want people to look at us and say, wow, they're so amazing. We want people to look at us and say, God is amazing. And I want to know that God, that peace. Finally, he says, verse 22, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I'm going to start including that in every sermon I preach (laughs) at the end. And it is funny because he just wrote a 13-chapter letter, right? I, I mean, it's pretty long. But that word exhortation, It stands for the public proclamation, a public teaching. A public teaching in this context along the word of God, a public declaration and explanation of the word of God. We use a slightly different word for that today. Do you know what we call it? Sermon. There's so many people going, sermons, that's archaic. Churches need to get rid of sermons. We can learn better other ways. Right there, he says, I've written you a sermon. Because the author intended for this letter to be read publicly. He wrote it. It was to be declared publicly. In fact, I would argue almost every book of the New Testament was intended in that way. Paul wrote Romans to be read publicly. Galatians, Philippians, the author of Hebrews wrote Hebrews to be read publicly. There is something about the public proclamation and declaration of the word of God that we need to bear with. A lot of people probably think you're nuts for spending your Sunday morning here. Fair enough? I think, man, you could be doing anything and you're sitting listening to a sermon. Some of you think you're nuts right now going, yeah, man, amen, brother. But you're keeping it quiet for the sake of somebody next to you. I get it. It's hard. That's why he says bear with. Because it's hard. We need to bear with the exhortation. You see, God equips us in Christ through the cross and the resurrection. But we need His instruction in how to continue to live that out. We need His instruction in in learning about the truths of what we are and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, one of my joys in in working on home improvement projects, I do get to get new tools. I, I try to limit myself. I try to hold back. But every once in a while, you just have to have that tool to do the job. And most of the time when I get a new tool, new tool, I open it up, rip open all the packages, throw the case and all the instructions to the side, and go to use it. Nine times out of ten in about 20 minutes, I'm right back to the instructions going, I don't know what I'm doing. What in the world was this thing go? Where's this part go? And we have to look at the instructions. God has given us instructions. In this case, it's the word of exhortation. It's the book of Hebrews. Do you know what the author of Hebrews is doing in the book of Hebrews? He's expounding upon Scripture from the Old Testament. Now, in his case, under the divine interpretation or inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's also writing Scripture. I don't claim that. I can't claim that. My authority is only as much as I am rooted in the word of God. It's God's word that gives us the instruction. There's many different ways for you to bear with or or be exhorted by the Word of God. Part of it is a public sermon, although I would say that's not enough. It's important, but not enough. 
We need to spend time in God's Word for ourselves. We need to bear under that instruction. We need to get together with small groups and read and study God's Word together. We gather for Sunday school for that purpose. With small groups throughout the week, you need to get into God's Word privately on your own. Bear with the Word of exhortation. Scripture gives us the instructions about the equipper, God. And about the equipment, all the ways that God has saved us and equipped us to do His will. But if we don't read the instructions, we're not going to know the amazing things that God has for us. Just to end up the book here, verses 23 and 24, Paul gives, or I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews gives some personal greetings. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. And then verse 25, he ends it fittingly. Grace, grace be with you all. There can be great pressure as you study God's Word, as you come to church, as you interact with other believers. There can be great pressure to seek to please God and to bring Him glory. And I want you to know that God has given you everything you need through Jesus Christ to please Him and bring you glory. That's a word of exhortation that you need to bear up under. It's a weight, in a sense, that confronts our desires to do it ourselves. But can I tell you, that weight of that exhortation that you need to bear under is lighter and more freeing than anything you're running after today. I guarantee it. He has saved you. He is equipping you. He has promised eternally through His covenant with us, through Jesus Christ, that these things are true. Live in faith. Living out what you know through God's Word He is doing in you. Bear up under this exhortation. Be confronted by the Word of God. Gather with others and study the Word of God. And do it all knowing that through His grace... He has saved you and He's equipping you with everything you need for His glory and your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is not easy often to come to Your Word. So often You challenge us and confront us with things we don't want to hear. And yet often there is also this encouragement and, and I find this passage so encouraging and I hope those gathered here today do as well. That all the standards of righteousness in Scripture, all the commands to holy living, all all the implications of being your holy people, being a living display for your glory, all of those things are fulfilled by you through your Son, Jesus Christ, in us. We just have to trust it and live it out. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today struggling with that, turn their eyes to Jesus. May they, as this song talks about, may they cry out, I have a Savior. And may they understand that they are saved through Christ, they are equipped through Christ to do Your will. And God, may we be a community of faith encouraging one another along the way so that others would look at us And not be impressed by us, but be impressed by you. And that they would be drawn to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And know your grace in their life as well. 
We pray this in the loving, gracious, equipping power of Jesus Christ. Amen.